Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Kicking Out at Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and uh, we are bringing back the fanny pack. That's right, the Dave Five fanny pack this week here on Kicking Out at Two, as we're going to be uh, covering some WCW topics. This is a WCW-themed fanny pack. Five random WCW topics thrown into one and discuss it here on this show. Um, this there's, there's a little bit more than just a WCW theme around it. It's a theme surrounding failed or short-lived concepts and experiments that took place during the existence known as world championship wrestling i'm going to get into that shortly but before i do that hit us up on social media be a part of all the fun we got going on over there facebook.com forward slash kicking out of two as well as our twitter handle um our handles at kicking out two k i c k n o u t and the number two links to archive shows. Um, we got some great discussions that go on over there, pictures and videos and debates and gifs and memes and all kinds of fun stuff. Try to make it positive, like I always do, because we sometimes we don't live in a positive world, especially on social media. But kicking out of two is trying to drive that positivity both on Facebook and Twitter. So be a part of all the fun on both of our social media outlets. And like I said, archive shows. You can also find archive shows of kicking out of two as a part of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. That's right. Hit us up on Podbean and uh, you can search Retromania with a W. You'll find Kicking Out at Two. You'll find Marking Out the Day's Weekend Warriors, Hulkamania is Dead, Origins of Attitude, uh, Gaijin Wrestling Radio. A lot of great bonus content we got going on over there. Um, so be a part of all of that on uh, the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. If uh, if you don't listen to your podcast on Podbean, you got another format or another uh, platform you you prefer you can find retromania on google play apple Podcasts, spotify spreaker stitcher you could find all the great shows of the retromania pro wrestling podcast network on those respective podcast platforms by searching retromania with a w all right cheap plugs out of the way as usual very formulaic of myself here on kicking out at two uh let's get into uh, the subject this week or the subjects i should say uh that it, that consists of the day five fanny pack short-lived or failed experiments in wcw during its existence let's kick things off with a very short-lived concept a concept that debuted later in, in, towards the actually at the tail end of WCW's existence, it only lasted for really a, you know a couple of weeks, and I'm referring to the WCW Cruiserweight Tag Team Championship. Um, this title was invented and created on March the 18th, uh, 2001, where there was a tournament um, consisting of. Uh, several teams uh taking place on episodes of nitro and thunder um yeah this was uh this was wcw trying to grasp at straws and hang on for dear life because they knew they're at the very end they they what embodied or should i say what one of the things that made wcw so great was their cruiserweight division um in the early in the in the mid to early 90s um you know, guys like Rey Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Jericho, Dean Malenko, the Luchadors like Juventud and Psychosis, um, you know, guys like those really established um, the cruiserweight division in WCW. And as time went on and as WCW became more popular, um, that cruiserweight division was kind of, you know, phased down the ladder. 
Um, and uh, towards the end of WCW, I think that management realized that and they thought, oh, let's try and, you know, give us a shot in the arm by bringing back, you know, cruiserweight wrestling, but in a tag team form along with the cruiserweight championship the singles title and so um the uh the the, the titles were born the first champions uh winning a tournament were kid romeo and elix skipper and they had uh they had you know won the titles in a tournament defeating um the filthy animals billy kidman and ray mysterio in the finals at the wcw greed pay-per-view which was the last pay-per-view of wcw's existence um it wouldn't be till uh, about you know uh, eight days later on the last episode of wcw monday nitro that uh the filthy animals billy kidman and ray mysterio would end up winning those cruiserweight tag team titles and being the last wcw cruiserweight tag team champions um the concept of would not carry over to wwe when wwe bought wcw um the titles would be retired and they have not been heard from again since however um in recent years there have been discussions of of bringing a tag team championship to wwe in cruiserweight form on the 205 live brand um when 205 live first became a thing and was um you know, aired after SmackDown on Tuesday nights on the WWE Network. Uh, it was associated with the WWE Cruiserweight title. And the Cruiserweight title has now um, made its home over to the NXT brand and as a part of NXT and NXT UK. Um, and 205 Live seems to be just kind of like a filler programming, you know, for, for the Cruiserweight guys that they need to give them something to do. They, they have little stories on their show that kind of associate with... Um, NXT and NXT UK loosely, but they don't have anything really to fight for. And so I was thinking, um, as I was doing this, you know, uh, the research on the, in this fanny pack episode that why not bring a cruiserweight tag team championship to 205 live now, excuse me. Some of you may say, well, you know, adding another title to WWE waters down the concept of championships. And yes, you can make a strong case for that. However, um, you know, the 205 Live audience is still there. It's not a large audience, but there's a reason why WWE is keeping it afloat uh, because there are people that will check it out, that, that fancy cruiserweight wrestling, that enjoy that style of wrestling. And so if you give those guys something um, and, and there's some stakes involved, it could make for better programming. Um, instead of just those guys wrestling randomly and maybe, maybe there's a match with a few of those guys to determine a number one contender to the NXT Cruiserweight Championship. Um, who knows? But um, it's something that I think that WWE has thought about and something that I think could work. Would it be a long-term situation would it be short term i don't know if it's a championship you got to make it long term you got to be committed to it but um i think it's something that um would would add some depth to that 205 live program um and give some of those guys some stakes and something to do um and and some meaning behind that show because I personally i don't watch 205 live i've caught a few matches here and there there's some good wrestling and i think wwe when they began that process with more you know with, with with 205 live and making it their own they tried really hard to 
listen to the audience of the diehard internet wrestling fans that live and die by that style of wrestling and think that that should be the style of wrestling that is at a main event level and shouldn't be labeled cruiserweight. And so they really just kind of let those guys be them and, and do their thing. And as great as they are athletically, there was no story behind a lot of those matches and a lot of that programming and that got old pretty quickly and now they're 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 kind of in a, a period i think where they're trying to figure some things out where 205 live stands you know i've said for the longest time to you know other wrestling fans that it's um it's a situation where probably just morphing them into NXT or NXT UK would be somewhat beneficial maybe slapping that nxt tag onto them their nxt 205 and making them a third nxt brand um would would kind of help their case i mean maybe even having them perform in front of the the full sale audience um you know who would appreciate that style of wrestling would help the presentation. Um, I think there's a lot of different factors that play into how you could improve the 205 Live brand. Um, but a Cruiserweight Tag Team Championship, I think, is something that could be beneficial to uh, to 205 Live. Now, let's backtrack a little bit because I've kind of gone all over the place on this subject here. Um the, you know, like I said, the Cruiserweight Championship or the Cruiserweight Tag Team Championship was something that was short-lived at the end of WCW's run. It was actually a, um, a, a nine, an eight-day uh, <laughs> an eight-day concept. Um, but what if the WCW Cruiserweight Tag Team Championship was a part of WCW during the heyday, during their 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 better years, um, when the cruiserweights were featured more? Is it possible? It's possible, but at the same time, there was so much going on in WCW and so much programming and so many guys on their roster that it probably would have gotten lost in the shuffle. I mean, um, between the storylines with the NWO taking over and the Cruiserweights being apart and, you know, even tag team wrestling at that time in WCW was not featured... Um, at a high level i mean you had your nasty boys and your harlem heats and your steiner brothers and even the outsiders and um but it wasn't a serious focal point it wasn't taken seriously and so i feel like cruiserweight tag team wrestling yes i could see them introducing those titles during that time period because they had a lot of luchadors they had a ton of guys but it probably would be something that would be relegated to wcw saturday night or one of their syndicated shows like a worldwide or a, a wcw pro um i don't think it would be featured at a high level but with all the guys that you have in there i mean you know Rey Mysterio, Billy Kidman, Juventud Guerrero, Chris Jericho, Psychosis, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko. You can even make a case for Chris Benoit. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the luchadors, you know, the Vianos and Liz Mark Jr. and Super Colo and Damien and you know, the list goes on and on and on. There were so many luchadors that, that took part in WCW and were a part of their programming that you could, you could make a case that there's enough guys to fill out a tag team division but is there enough focus because if there isn't any focus then it's not going to make much sense i mean like i said wcw's tag team division in and of itself wasn't highlighted the way that i think most fans would have appreciated or would have liked those belts were used as a prop a lot of times and a lot of fans say that championship belts are props but um 
you know, they were kind of held hostage within the NWO storyline. The Outsiders had them for a while. The Steiner brothers might have had them for a little bit. But for the most part, the NWO kind of controlled the championship title pictures on a number of levels. And Cruiserweight Tag Team Wrestling... Maybe the NWO would have, you know, slapped a couple of NWO shirts on a few cruiserweight guys and made them their champions. You know, you had six Sean Waltman, X-Pac at one time was a part of WCW as a member of the NWO. Maybe him and another, uh, you know, cruiserweight wrestler could have been the NWO's representation in the cruiserweight division as the cruiserweight tag team champions. You never know. But uh, I don't think it's something that uh, would have gotten the focus it deserved at that time um, in WCW. Now, I give WCW credit for trying to reintroduce it later on, but it was one of those situations where it was too little too late. Um, but I do think that um, in today's landscape of wrestling, especially in WWE with the 205 Live brand, um, you see a lot of that style of wrestling with AEW. Um, a, two, a cruiserweight tag team title, I think, could work if you put the emphasis and you put the focus on it and you make it mean something and it's not just a reward to give a guy for working hard and being loyal it's it, it, it's meant to be an integral part of a storyline and that's where i see um the uh the, the wcw cruiserweight tag team titles um all right let's get into another subject here um in the fanny pack let's talk about um a concept that wasn't short-lived, but definitely failed. And I don't think WCW realized how much it failed um, until, you know, the very end. And I'm talking about the WCW Uncensored Pay-Per-View concept. Um, WCW Uncensored Pay-Per-View was a, um, a pay-per-view that in the fictional storylines... WCW's board of directors had washed their hands of all the rules and the stipulations and every match on the card was unsanctioned, meaning there was not subject to the normal rules of WCW sanctioned wrestling matches. Um, in reality, it was a booked, it was no, it was a normal book WCW show, um, featuring more than one gimmick match. Um, the last few years of its existence, though, those gimmick matches were kind of downplayed. Um, you saw a few, but you didn't see them overtake the entire card. Um, and uh, the, the pay-per-view concept was uh, scrapped eventually after um, the 2000 edition of WCW Uncensored. So uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the, the gimmick matches that took place on this card and why. This pay-per-view concept was a a six-year reminder of of the bad creativity that took place within WCW. Um, let's go to uh, let, let's let's go here. First of all, uh, all right. The 1995 edition of WCW Uncensored featured a King of the Road match with the Blacktop Bully defeating Dustin Rhodes. What is a King of the Road match? Well, my friends, you should Google that. But, uh, you know, before you do Google that, let me tell you that uh, it's not a match that is regarded as, as one of the all-time greats in wrestling history. Um, it's basically a match that, was, that took place inside the back of an 18-wheeler um, an 18-wheeler truck that transferred hay. Um, the truck pretty much was like this big giant cage 
on the back of this you know rig and it was driving around the road um and in the back of it was dustin rhodes and the blacktop bully who would be known as smash from demolition the repo man and the object of the match was to beat your opponent so bad that you had to climb to the top of the truck and you had to pull on the horn and once you once you honk the horn you were the winner of the match um go back and watch it uncensored 1995 google it youtube it find it on wwe network um just so you could say that you watched this piece of crap because it was a piece of crap. It really was. Um, you know, both guys dressed in their street clothes, their, 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 their shit-kicking cowboy attire, whatever you want to call it, um, had a very Southern vibe to it. Um, you know, both guys eventually would get fired along with the agent who was in charge of the match, Mike Graham, for bleeding on WCW programming, which was something that I guess was not allowed amongst uh, Turner uh, Sports. So um, that, that, that shows how short-lived the concept really was, was that they never did this match again because of, because of that. Um, but it's pretty much a brawl inside of the back of a truck, and there's no real, um, there's no real story. I mean, you had the the way that it was produced and, and shot, according to uh, Eric Bischoff on an episode of Eighty Three Weeks. Um, there was a guy in a pickup truck that was filming with a camera, um, and then there was an overhead helicopter shot, which cost thousands of dollars to uh, to produce. They had to shut down a, a a road and a highway in fucking Tupelo, Mississippi, or wherever the fuck this pay per view was held. Where was it held? Yeah, Tupelo, Mississippi. They had to shut down a, a major roadway in order to put this match on and pay thousands of dollars in a permit for the city or the town. I mean. The, the money that was spent and what we got in return to that investment just didn't add up. Doesn't make sense. Um, so th that's a, that's a short-lived concept that we never got to see again. The next match on this card was a martial arts match with Meng, who was managed by Colonel Robert Parker, as he defeated Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I mean, holy crap. Um, they had... They had Duggan come out dressed up like the guy from the the Bloodsport movie with the cowboy boots and the jeans and the, the, the bandana. And then you had, you know, Meng Haku, who, uh, you know, used some martial arts moves in his repertoire. I don't know if he practiced martial arts whatsoever, but, um, yeah, this was a pretty silly uh, match. Sonny Ono was the guest referee of this match. This was before Sonny Ono became a regular character in WCW um, as a manager for a number of the Japanese wrestlers as well as the Lucha doors um uh, yeah that was it, it was garbage it, it would th this was not a good match the next match even worse johnny b bad versus arn anderson in a boxer versus wrestler match um johnny b bad had to perform um under boxing rules and arn anderson had to wrestle under pro wrestling rules and it was two mixtures of styles that just didn't work they made the best with what they could but uh it really wasn't a good match whatsoever um a falls count anywhere match which is a standard gimmick match in wrestling this took place um as the Nasty Boys faced off against Harlem Heat. Uh, this was a fun match. If there's one match on this uncensored pay-per-view you go back and watch, it's this match. It was pretty fun. I mean, you had, you know, Sherry, Sister Sherry, who's the valet to Harlem Heat. She was involved. She took a number of bumps in this match. 
Um, these four men were all over the place. This is a pretty fun brawl. And the commentary was pretty fun, too, with uh, Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, and, uh, and I believe Dusty Rhodes was also on this on this show as well. Um, so go check that out. Nasty Boys, Harlem Heat, Falls County, anywhere match from Uncensored 1995. And the main event of this pay-per-view was a leather strap match as Hulk Hogan defeated Vader with Ric Flair in his corner. Um... Ric Flair ended up being the one that took the fall or was a part of the finish as Hogan dragged him with the strap and tapped all four corners and the referee called for the bell and the match was over. Um, I don't know if it was some sort of political move because they didn't want Vader to job to Hogan or Hogan wouldn't lay down for Vader. I don't know what the deal is, but uh, that's what we had there. And Ric Flair was dressed in drag. Think about that for a minute there. Ric Flair was dressed in drag um, in Vader's corner. Um, yeah, so I mean, talk about uh, talk about un, you know unsanctioned, uncensored. Um, the this pay per view should have been censored. That's how bad it was in 1995. Um, but wait, folks, there's more because it only gets better. Um, uncensored 1996 would uh, would <laughs> would would. would top this w the uncensored 1995 match um there weren't as many gimmick matches on this card as a matter of fact there were only two gimmick matches on this card a chicago street fight with sting and booker t defeating the road warriors uh which was a pretty fun match um but then the main event the doomsday cage match it was hulk hogan and macho man randy savage defeating rick flair arn anderson ming the barbarian lex luger the taskmaster z gangsta and the ultimate solution holy crap now for those of you that are loyal listeners and followers of this show one of my earlier episodes, I did a uh, show called Guilty Pleasures with my brother Justin and my good buddy Dennis Levy, and I talked about the Doomsday Cage being a guilty pleasure of mine. Not necessarily this match, but just the structure in and of itself, something that I think could have been brought back into wrestling if, you know, under better circumstances, if it wasn't so hokey. Um... This match here was pretty hokey. I mean, you had Hulk Hogan and Macho Man had to go from different cages to defeat two different guys and then escape those cages to go to the next cage to face a bunch of guys to get to the bottom of the cage, which had a ring in it, to defeat the last two guys that were involved in the match. Um, physically, looking at this structure, if you look at it, you go back and you, uh, you, you take a look at it, you'll see that um, it's pretty impressive looking, but... The match itself, the way it was executed, poorly done. Um, uncensored 1997 from North Charleston, South Carolina, March the 16th, 1997. This this show here um, didn't feature as many gimmick matches. As a matter of fact, there was really only a couple. Um, a Texas Tornado match with Harlem Heat defeating Public Enemy. Um, but then this was an interesting concept here we had a triangle elimination match it was the team of the nwo hollywood hogan macho man randy savage kevin nash and scott hall defeating roddy piper's team consisting of roddy piper chris benoit jeff jarrett and steve mcmichael and also defeating the wcw team of lex luger the giant and scott steiner this was a four team or three team four man to each team gauntlet battle royal style match you had three guys start the match out and then 
at every interval, one member from each team would enter the match and be a battle royal until all, you know, men are entered. And then you eliminate and the last guy standing wins for their team. Um there were some pretty interesting stipulations involved in this match, too. If the NWO won, they were guaranteed um, title opportunities at any time, any place uh, within WCW. Um, if the WCW team won, consisting of Luger, the Steiners, and the Giant, um, the NWO would be, uh, would be banned and, uh, for, for, from WCW for 36 months. Um, and if Piper's team won, then Piper would be guaranteed a title shot at Hollywood Hogan and the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Um, so, yeah, that, that consisted of the 1997 Uncensored Pay-Per-View. Um, you could find that on WWE Network. I've watched it a few times. Um, really nothing to write home about. I remember as a teenager, I thought it was kind of cool. But looking back on it now... Um, not as good as uh, not as good as I, I thought I remembered it. Um, the 1998 uncensored pay-per-view, probably on paper, one of the best cards that they put out in the uncensored series. But uh, when it came to executing it, it really wasn't. Um, it, 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 I mean, it was it was a solid show. It was okay, but it didn't like blow me out of the water. Um, we saw Booker T defeat Eddie Guerrero, Juventud Guerrero defeat Conan, Chris Jericho defeat Dean Malenko for the Cruiserweight Championship, Lex Luger defeating Scott Steiner, a triple threat, um, Falls Count Anywhere match with Diamond Dallas Page defeating Raven and Chris Benoit, the Giant defeating Kevin Nash, Bret Hart defeating Kurt Henning, Sting defeating Scott Hall, and Hollywood Hogan defeating Randy or wrestling Randy Savage to a no contest inside of a steel cage. Probably the only gimmick match on the card. Um, on paper, like I said, looks to be a fantastic show, but um, the execution of it, poor. And then in 1999, we would see Hogan and Flair in a barbed wire first blood steel cage match. Um, Flair would bleed first, but the referee wouldn't call for the bell. So therefore, there goes the first blood rule. I mean, talk about lack of consistency within your storylines. I mean, holy crap, what the fuck was that? Um, there was a Harlem street fight with Stevie Ray defeating Vincent for leadership of the NWO Black and White. Um, a false count anywhere match, which was pretty damn fun. Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, Raven, and Hack. Um, there was a lumberjack match for the World Tag Team titles with the Horsemen. Benoit and Malenko defeating Kurt Henning and Barry Windham. Perry Saturn and Chris Jericho in a dog collar match. And then, like I said, the uh, the, the barbed wire steel cage first blood match. Um, Flair winning and becoming the president of WCW in the process. Um, officially, not just temporarily, because at that time he was the interim president of WCW. Um, and then... Probably what, in my memory, I remember most about the uncensored pay-per-view pay concept was the year 2000 and how shitty this pay-per-view was all around. I watched it once. Actually, I didn't watch all of it, I should say. I watched some of it. Um, I didn't watch all of it because it was, it was pretty crappy. Um, the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea defeating Psychosis for the Cruiserweight Championship. Norman Smiley and the Demon defeating Lane and Rave. Bam Bam Bigelow defeating The Wall. Brian Knobs winning back the Hardcore Championship from three count in a hardcore match. 
Billy Kidman and Booker T to take on Harlem Heat 2000, Big T and Stevie Ray. Vampiro and Fit Finley in a pretty fun Falls Count Anywhere match. Um, the Harris Brothers defeating the Mama Lukes for the WCW Tag Team titles. A bull rope match with Dustin Rhodes defeating Terry Funk. A lumberjack match with Sting defeating Lex Luger. You had Sid Vicious defeating Jeff Jarrett for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, but this, this is the one that takes the cake for me. The Yappapai Strap Match. The Yappapai Indian Strap Match, excuse me, as Hulk Hogan defeating Ric Flair in 2000. And this was to me right here where this was the, the point in time where I was like, man, WCW really needs to turn it around because this shit's getting ugly. Um, and yeah, so basically after reading off all the results of all these uncensored pay-per-views, do you think it was a, a concept worth worth enduring for six years? I mean, I don't. Um, it, it, it's something that they probably should have, you know, canceled or put the Knicks on after the first edition with the boxing match and the, 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 the Hogan invader strap match and, you know, the, 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 the martial arts match. I mean, it just, it, it wasn't, it, it, it didn't work. It, bottom line, it did not work. Um, but I mean, it, it makes for great wrestle crap material i mean it makes for if, if if any of you guys want to do a watch along one of these days of one of these uncensored pay-per-views i'd be glad to do one with you i mean it's it, it it makes for some really bad wrestling but something fun to poke at too um so that's what i think about the wcw uncensored pay-per-view concept all right let's continue here um with another concept that was very short-lived in wcw uh i wouldn't I don't know if it was a failed experiment or if it was something that they were trying out, but it was something that I remember uh, vividly as a youngster. Uh, and now I'm talking about the referee camera. That's right, the helmet camera. Um, for a short period of time, WCW introduced this helmet camera to try to add credibility to their presentation, legitimize pro wrestling or their version of pro wrestling um this is something that took place in the early 90s i would say probably 1990 1991 we would see this um didn't last very long but it consisted of a referee wearing a hockey helmet uh with no face mask and then there was a camera attached to that helmet and from time to time during a match you would see a referee um uh you know the referee's point of view um on this camera whether it's two guys locking up or it's a referee going for a pinfall and making the cover um but it was a concept that didn't really last very long and i think we probably could find a number of reasons why it didn't last very long uh, first and foremost um kind of exposing the business uh, in, in some ways um you have you know the, the referee's a big part of of producing a match you know he's the one that's really you know given the directions out there um the guys are doing all the, all the work and the heavy lifting but the referee's the one that's just kind of there to you know make sure that you know they're reminded of how much time is left and you know maybe you know there to help transition into another spot um or you know to kind of you know uh implement something on the fly from someone in the back through their headpiece um or their earpiece excuse me and uh so the referee sometimes will have to communicate with the performers during the match as 
some of you may well know. And so um, that could be one of the reasons. That's probably why, you know, WCW had gotten rid of the referee camera, um, the helmet cam, because uh, the audio sometimes would pick up on referee communicating with the performers or even the performers um, communicating with each other. Um, another reason why this concept probably didn't last very long within WCW was the fact that the camera itself um albeit i i get i understand the the thought process behind them wanting to do that the reasonings why to legitimize their product to add a little bit more credibility to their presentation um to have it come across like a sport but um sometimes the camera angles would be a little bit messed up based on the positioning of the referee sometimes when a referee would go down to make the cover um you could blatantly see a guy's shoulders might not be all the way on the map but the referee's still making the cover but the camera angle is a little tilted to the right or the left depending on how the referee makes the count so therefore you really only get like a a, a small view of you know what the you know the actual what the referee's trying to uh, let me i'm, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here i feel like a fucking idiot but uh you basically you would get like a picture of like the canvas or like you know it, it almost looks like it was like a point of view of the referee like lying down on his side and you maybe get the camera like staring up at the lights um but you wouldn't get a full picture of you know what what you would expect to see um so I think the, the camera angles were a little off and it would also expose the business, um, you know, with the, the whole, you know, shoulder not, shoulder not on the mat for the one, two, three, referee still making the count. Um, you could hear a lot of the communication between the wrestlers. Um, and I think also, too, it opens up that it, it, it not only does it expose the business, but it also opens up the possibility of, you know, fans calling bullshit with like instant replay. You know, if you have a finish where the referee is distracted and you have someone cheat to win, whether they pulled the tights or whether someone came in and interfered and the referee made the count, well, you can easily go back to the referee's referee camera and call, you know, bullshit and all of a sudden you would have an instant replay rule in pro wrestling instant replay rules in pro wrestling have never worked um they've tried it a few times um it's come off pretty silly and i think with a referee camera it's something that uh i just don't think i i just don't think it it, it would have worked um i know tna tried it a number of years ago and uh that didn't seem to work either same same issues um you know the camera angles were all fucked up because of the referee's positioning while he was wearing the helmet um some of the audio you would catch you know guys communicating with each other certain spots or the referee communicating you know transition spots to guys um and you would open up that possibility of if there was some kind of screw job finish well you, you would have to go back to the referee's camera to see what was you know what the issue was um and it, you would eventually have to implement the instant replay rule and you don't want to do that in wrestling because then you basically you know corner yourself or pigeonhole yourself into doing that from here on out so um one of the very short-lived experiments with wcw here the referee camera something wwe has not done thank god um they get a lot of flack for trying new things from a production standpoint they have not done that i will say they did do something similar 
um, a number of years ago, and they haven't really done it since. I thought it was a good idea and something that could have added a different dimension to the presentation was when they put a camera in the corner post and you would get the bird's eye view of a wrestler in a tag team match trying to tag his opponent to reach out for the tag um but they didn't show that very often i think it was something that they were testing something that they were trying to um something they were trying to see if it would fly with within their presentation and for whatever reason i guess they didn't like it but i thought it was something pretty cool where you know for instance there would be a tag team match and let's say it was usos and new day and uh you see you know um one of the Usos reaching out for the tag and there's that, that bird's eye view in the corner. Um, or even like a top rope maneuver where you see like the guy's feet on the t resting on the top rope as he goes to jump off the top rope. And then you got that bird's eye view with the camera, um, you know, perched in the corner. I thought that was, I thought that was some kind of cool, you know, I thought there was some cool stuff and something I feel like could be added to the presentation. I think AEW might've tried something like that too recently. Um, I think a lot of organizations that have television are trying stuff like that to add something different to their presentation. I think it could work. That's just me. I might be in the minority here, but I think it's something that, um, you know, should be further explored in future presentations in pro wrestling currently today but you could always go back and hearken to the fact that um the the up close environment with like a point of view type camera or a referee camera or a helmet camera or a corner camera could expose the business so um it, i guess it's a, i guess it's one of those concepts that like it's it, it could be used when it's needed but not something that's part of regular programming um all right let's continue here um another short-lived concept experiment I don't know if you would consider this a failure or not because I don't think it had enough time to really fail was the night that Sting turned heel in 1999 at the Fall Brawl pay-per-view. Um, at the time, he was wrestling Hulk Hogan, who was the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. This was during a period of time where the company was in a state of flux. Um, they had just let go of Eric Bischoff, or they had just sent Eric Bischoff home to write out the rest of his contract. And they were trying to figure out who was going to be the one to, to, to lead the ship within WCW. This was before Vince Russo ever came on board. Um, and... Uh, this was obviously an idea that had been cooked up for quite some time before Bischoff's departure, but uh, in the, in this particular storyline, Sting and Hogan were kind of friends, even though the, the two of them had history with each other um, off and on, and Sting was very leery and couldn't trust Hogan, and Hogan was Hogan had returned in the summer of 1999 as a good guy. He had donned the red and yellow, and he brought back the traditional old Hulkamania, and... Hogan was trying to earn the trust back not only of the fans but some of his peers and that included Sting but at the time Sting had earned himself a shot at the WCW title and Hogan was willing to be the, the the one to give it to him and so Sting was very leery of Hogan's intentions and if Hogan was going to stab him in the back because Hogan had a history of doing that sort of thing and at the time they were headed for a championship match at the Fall Brawl event and Lex Luger would get involved in this in this situation and as Sting's friend he would be the one that was really the driving force the, the straw that was stirring the drink um, 
when it comes to uh, the the doubt that that Sting had uh, regarding um, Hogan's character. And so from time to time, Luger would point out, you know, you can't trust this guy. Look what he did with the NWO. He turned out his back on everybody, et cetera, et cetera. And even showing, um, even trying to prove to Sting that Hogan was the driver of the white Hummer that had run the Hummer into Kevin Nash's limo with Kevin Nash inside of it, which is another subject I'm going to get into in a future uh, fanny pack uh, within the next several weeks. Um, so there was a lot of doubt heading into the match, and um, eventually what we got was um, Luger getting involved in, in the, uh, the, the fall brawl match along with Diamond Dallas Page, who was also another one of those like detractors of Hogan at the time. DDP was a heel. He was the leader of the Jersey Triad with Bam Bam Bigelow and Canyon, and he too was also very instrumental in trying to um, add more doubt to Sting's uh, um, thought process when it comes to Hulk Hogan. And so DDP got involved, and then eventually Sting would use the baseball bat to attack Hulk Hogan um, and secure the WCW World Heavyweight Championship in victory. And that was the beginning of Sting's turn or heel turn in WCW. Now, in the weeks to follow, Sting would... Sting wouldn't go out of his way to be friendly to the audience like he normally did as a babyface, but he didn't... He wasn't unfriendly either. Um, he didn't really change a whole lot other than aligning himself with Luger. Um, and I don't know if it was a situation where they didn't know what to do with him now as a bad guy or he didn't really embrace the role fully because going back and remembering some of those nitros, which I didn't watch many of, but I, re I remember watching a few, especially during that time period in the fall of 99. And, um, Sting didn't really, I don't think he really embraced being a bad guy. I don't think that he could get into that role. I think he enjoyed being the hero. I think fans were so used to him being the hero that they didn't even know how to react to him being a bad guy. Um, he got a decent amount of, you know, booze from the crowd, but he didn't do anything to go out of his way to really get them to hate him. And I think that's one of the reasons why it didn't work. I think not embracing it didn't work. Uh, I also think this, this heel turn was a victim of circumstance regarding the, the the state of the company at the time they were in like i said a state of flux they were trying to figure out who was going to be the next guy to run the show um bischoff was out and then eventually they would hire vince russo and ed ferrara and um eventually you know sting's heel turn would be phased out and he would just be sting and he wouldn't really um he wouldn't really change either way. He was just kind of going with the flow, so to speak. And so it was a situation where there was a lot of different factors that played into why this didn't work. How could they have improved it? How could they have made Sting's heel turn work? Well, I feel like Sting would have had to have really embraced the role and really tried hard to get people to hate him. You know, every, every person, every wrestler that has portrayed a heel in pro wrestling history has at least tried in one form of another to 
bring on the cheap heat. And Sting didn't even do that with like the cities he was performing in. You know, you could rip on a sports team or a local politician or a local celebrity and you can get instant heat from the audience just like that. Sting didn't even do stuff like that. I think Sting tried to go with a little more subtle approach, um, trying to be a little bit more darker, not as vocal, aligning with Luger. Um, and just, you know, carrying out, you know, vicious attacks on Hogan and guys like Ric Flair and eventually Bret Hart. Um, but he didn't really go out of his way to be um, a, uh, a, a, you know, a, a big money drawing heel. Um, could they have paired him up with someone who was a stronger baby face? Maybe. Maybe pairing up Sting with a guy like a Goldberg would have would have helped that matter. But how long would that have lasted? You know, you can't do Sting and Goldberg forever. At some point, Sting's going to have to be able to perform in that role. Um, <clears throat> and like I said, victim of circumstance here. At the time, WCW was changing. Russo had kind of flipped the switch and, and, and redrafted all the storylines. And it could be a situation where, um, you know, Russo felt Sting was probably a better babyface than a heel, and he was going to go with what he could work with. And Sting probably agreed with that with that same notion. Um, but at the same time, Vince Russo also liked to take chances. So maybe it was a situation where Russo said to Sting, let's keep going with this. Let's see how far we can go with you as, as the villain. And Sting didn't really want any part of it. And Sting having, you know, some kind of political stroke within the company, it, it was probably in Russo's best interest not to really piss him off. I mean, Russo at the time was also cleaning house too he was getting rid of a lot of the established guys guys like flair and hogan were were exiled from wcw um with no real future or plan for them even though they were still under contract so i think russo probably was trying to appease sting by not really pushing the issue of him being the villain but um if you go back and you watch, you can really tell that there really wasn't much of a change in Sting's demeanor and his character um, as a heel, other than the fact that he was aligned with Lex Luger and he was attacking a couple of baby faces. But it wasn't really explained so much um, as to why he turned back into a baby face. It was just one of those things where Russo had redrafted and rewritten stories and Sting turned baby face after he had an issue with Lex Luger. So I guess Russo kind of kept with the continuity because it was Luger that helped him turn into a heel, but it was also Luger's actions and Luger's involvement with Sting at the time that also turned Sting back into a baby face. So, um, you could chalk it up as a number of different things as to why Sting's heel turn didn't work. Um, and they would try, you know, Sting would eventually try to be a heel, you know, in TNA a couple of times. And it didn't really seem to work. Um, people love Sting as a babyface. He's one of those guys that, like, you, you keep him in the role that he's good at. Like a Randy Orton. Randy Orton to me is, like, better as a heel. He's, the, he's probably the best heel in all of wrestling. Okay, currently, um, he knows how to get people to hate him. And even in today's day and age where, you know, it's really hard to get that kind of reaction. Orton knows how to do it. And so Sting is better off being a babyface because the people love him and it's it, people don't want to hate him. People didn't want to see him, you know, as the villain. And I think that was a, a big part as to why it didn't work and him not embracing the role and the change in direction in the company. Um, it was just a, a, a wrong place, wrong time kind of scenario when it came to Sting uh, and his heel run, the failed heel run of 1999. 
And our final short-lived WCW concept that uh, did not last very long was the WCW Hall of Fame. No, not the WWE Hall of Fame, the WCW Hall of Fame. That's right. Um, the WCW Hall of Fame was established in 1993 to honor wrestlers who began their careers long before the 1990s, mostly alumni of the National Wrestling Alliance and Jim Crockett Promotions, which were the predecessors of WCW. Um, the inductees would receive commemorative plaques that had their names and portraits inscribed on them. They were inducted by Gordon Solney, who was a senior commentator in the company at the time, and they would receive their plaque during the Legends Reunion segment at the WCW pay-per-view known as Slamboree. Um, this would be the second Hall of Fame established to honor professional wrestlers after the creation of the WWF Hall of Fame in February of 1993. Um, but it would be after the 1995 Hall of Fame ceremony where WCW stopped pro producing these Hall of Fames without a formal announcement. Um, yeah, this is interesting because uh, I remember this as a kid, um, as a youngster, that uh, the sl Slamboree pay-per-view kind of had that Legends theme to it. Um, they would bring back guys that were, you know, that had hadn't wrestled in quite some time or you know retired from the business and would induct them into their hall of fame maybe even put them in like a legends match um where they would uh they would turn the lights down and uh you know uh present the screen in black and white like old wrestling which i thought was kind of cool uh something a little bit different but um the uh the the, the slamboree pay-per-view was the um the, the home of the, the the wcw hall of fame now um the inductees in each of these classes. Uh, the first ceremony took place on May 23rd, 1993 uh, at the 1993 Slamboree pay-per-view event from the Omni in Atlanta. Um, in this class of 1993 for the WCW Hall of Fame, it included Luthez along with Vern Gagne, Mr. Wrestling 2, and Eddie Graham, who was the first posthumous inductee into the Hall of Fame. Um, the following year, in 94, at the uh, Civic Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Harley Race, Ole Anderson, The Crusher, uh, The Late Dick, The Bruiser, Ernie Ladd, and The Masked Assassin were inducted into the Hall of Fame. And then the final ceremony, which took place in 1995 in St. Petersburg, Florida, at the Bayfront Arena, saw Wahoo McDaniel, Big John Studd, Terry Funk, Antonio Inoki, Angelo Poffo, Dusty Rhodes, and Gordon Soley all enter the WCW Hall of Fame. Now, uh, some interesting tidbits here that I stumbled upon. In 95, following this ceremony, Gordon Soley, um, both who inducted both the wrestlers and was an inf influential figure in the selection process, had resigned from WCW in protest of... Angelo Poffo's initiation, feeling that management only inducted an unqualified person into the Hall of Fame as a favorite of Poffo's son and one of the company's top draws, Randy Macho Man Savage. I never knew that. I never heard reason why Gordon Soley uh, left WCW. I had, the only thing I had heard regarding his departure was he was getting older and he didn't want to work as much and I believe his health was was uh, beginning to uh, come into question and that's why he was kind of phased out of WCW um, but uh, you know what I wanted to do here when I brought this Hall of Fame up was to kind of continue that WCW Hall of Fame tradition you know because WCW would eventually close down in 2001 but what if WCW were to create were, were to have still 
produce these Hall of Fames at these Slamboree pay-per-views? Who else could have gone into the Hall of Fame? Who would have been surefire sh- sure shoe-ins to be a part of the WCW Hall of Fame? Um, well, I mean, you could you could argue Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Barry Windham, Tully Blanchard. You could put the Four Horsemen in as you know one class of the WCW Hall of Fame. Um, you know, Tully Blanchard was out of the business at the time, but Flair and Arn were a part of um, WCW. Barry Windham, I don't, I believe he was kind of bouncing back and forth between WWF and WCW. Um, if he wasn't doing that, then he was not in, heavily involved in the business. I'm sure that they would have given him a phone call. Um, Sting and Lex Luger definitely could have been shoe-ins. Uh, their contributions to WCW and uh, Jim Crockett promotions certainly don't go uh, unnoticed. Um, the Steiner brothers, big parts of WCW and its tag team division for a number of years. I think uh, the Steiner brothers would have definitely been a shoe-in to, uh, to, to enter the WCW Hall of Fame. And then as time goes on, eventually, maybe they would have put in someone like a Hulk Hogan, or maybe they would have put in someone like a Randy Savage into the, the WCW Hall of Fame for their contributions and what they they brought to WCW. Um, you know, maybe we would have seen someone like a Roddy Piper who had... Um, ties to Jim Crockett promotions and the and and the NWA one of the predecessors to WCW uh, maybe we would have seen a Roddy Piper enter the WCW Hall of Fame um I know from from going back and uh you know um doing some research uh, the Armstrong family were big parts of WCW you know all the Armstrong boys wrestled for WCW I believe Bullet Bob had some had a had a uh, you know a, a tenure within the company um, I could have seen a Bullet Bob Armstrong go into the WCW Hall of Fame um, even uh, you know individuals like the Freebirds who were a big part of the NWA um, er, you know early on before it had become WCW maybe even someone like a Brian Pillman who even though he was still wrestling um, he had a big part um, of the early days of WCW maybe you know a Hall of Fame induct- induction would have been uh, something to uh, you know add more stock to his career um, in WCW but you know those are just a few of the names that, that, that come to mind Vader Vader I forgot about Vader or even Cactus Jack um, they are no longer with the company but I'm sure that um, you know at some point if WCW were in existence they would have acknowledged their their uh, their, their, their time there as and their contributions. Kevin Sullivan, who was not only a big presence behind the scenes as a booker, but also as a camera as a, a, a character on camera. So, um, like I said, those are just a few that come to mind. Um, if there is any kind of WCW Hall of Fame um, wing to the WWE Hall of Fame, then you could obviously, you know, you flares in, stings in, the rest of the horsemen are in. The NWO um, was supposed to go in earlier this year, um, but due to the, uh, the, the the coronavirus pandemic canceling the Hall of Fame and, you know, making WrestleMania what it was, um, you know, there's talk of uh, Hall of Fame at SummerSlam. 
uh, we'll, we'll, you know, hopefully that's the case because I think these guys deserve their their just due. Uh, Goldberg's already in. Lex Luger, you know, Lex Luger's not in. Vader's not in. Um, Brian Pillman's not in. Uh, Kevin Sullivan's not in. If you were to put a WCW wing into the WWE Hall of Fame, adding those guys to it would be instrumental. Of course, Eric Bischoff, who, in my opinion, um, should have went in with the NWO. Maybe he'll go in on his own someday. Uh, Bischoff contributed a ton to the business uh being a part of wcw and his contributions to making wcw a legitimate threat to the wwf so if you were to make a wcw wing bischoff definitely deserves his role in there um and and deserves to rightfully go into the hall of fame for what he's contributed with the invention of nitro and it, the way he turned wcw around the creation of the nwo the cruiserweights um just the way that he helped structure monday night wrestling live wrestling you know because there are a lot of what bischoff introduced and implemented into nitro a lot of that you see in today's you know wwe on monday night raw and the way that things are structured so um you can thank eric bischoff for that My, many people might disagree with me but i feel like eric bischoff doesn't get enough uh love and respect for his contributions to uh professional wrestling so uh yeah a, a, a wcw wing of the wwe hall of fame certainly should have someone like eric bischoff and all the other names that i mentioned a part of it uh, but yeah that wcw hall of fame was a short-lived concept and you know like i said if they had continued it i could definitely have seen sting and flair and luger and the horsemen and you know name Names like that uh, enter the WCW Hall of Fame if it was still in existence. So um, that's where I stand with the the short-lived um, WCW Hall of Fame, and that's where I stand with all the other short-lived experiments and concepts that are WCW. Um, thank you so very much for uh, joining me this week for another Dave Five Fanny Pack, the fourth installment of our Fanny Pack series. I appreciate uh, all the love and support you guys have been giving, kicking out it to um, each and every week. Make sure you hit us up on social media, facebook.com forward slash kicking out it to, as well as our Twitter handle at kicking out to. Check out all the archive links uh, in the uh, Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network on Podbean by searching Retromania with a W. Got a bunch of great shows a part of that network, so we want you to check them all out as well as kicking out at two and uh we'll be back same time same place next week right here on kicking out at two and i think i think because i just said that it's about that time that we put this show officially down for the three count and we will see you all next week <laughs>